Welcome to BIB Today. We're the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIB.com. And I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on in the show, BIV's tech panel will look at Amazon labor concerns as well as its price discounts at Whole Foods. First, we'll have a look at where Canada and U.S. relations go from here after a rocky G7 summit and with auto tariffs on the horizon. From Singapore, of course, the location of the Trump-Kim summit, the U.S. president had a few things to say about Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. According to Trump, Trudeau's remarks that Canada will not be pushed around will end up costing Canada a lot of money. We're going to look at just how much is at stake with our next guest. Carlo Dade is the director of the Center for Trade and Investment Policy at the Canada West Foundation. He joins us regularly on the program and today joins us on the line from Saskatchewan. Carlo, thanks for coming on. Hey, always a pleasure. Now, Canada's being singled out here a little bit. We're, of course, not the only country to have responded to U.S. tariffs or to comment on measures taken by the White House. So how seriously should Ottawa be taking these latest remarks? Seriously, in line with the the trajectory of our dealings with this administration, uh, that is, you know, this may very well blow over. It's a course correction in in the negotiations. You'll remember that when things first started out, uh, things were going quite swimmingly. Uh, Folks were surprised at how well the Trudeau government seemed to be, excuse me, managing the relationship and um, how well Canada seemed to be doing. But, you know, even back then, that, that, that success prompted uh, talk in Ottawa, especially amongst the former Canadian government and their officials, to um, distance ourselves from Mexico, which was then catching the flack that we're now catching. You know, Trump hates Mexico. We need to distance ourselves from them, throw them under the bus. The response I got from the Mexican government and other folks in Mexico City was, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Your turn is coming. He's done this to us. He's at some point going to do this to you. And well, you know, turns out, uh, turns out they were right. Yeah, is this is this uh, posturing in a true sense around uh, around trade negotiations, or is this a little bit off the page of what you typically see? God, you really have to read the tea leaves when dealing with Donald Trump. But uh, you know, some of the reports and analysis that I've seen have said that this deals more with the upcoming talks in Singapore and the administration's fears about looking weak going into the uh, the, the the summit with uh, the North Korean leader. Yeah, this, if that was the intention, Trump's instead of come out looking weak, he's come out looking deranged, um, which really can't help. But you know, figuring this out is. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Our prime minister said nothing out of the ordinary, not only out of the ordinary for U.S.-Canada relations, but out of the ordinary for the broader context Mm -hmm. of global trade disputes, the long history of countries bringing tariffs and retaliatory tariffs. So you go back to the founding of the GATT, even, not just the WTO. And the language that we used was boilerplate. Uh, You would have seen it pop up probably 90% uh, of the long arc of history of trade disputes. So there was nothing, uh, sorry, absolutely nothing uh, in the Prime Minister's remarks, nor in his timing, um, to 
uh, justify or, uh, the, the, the response by the Americans. So it had to be something else. But with Donald Trump, who knows? But there, there are a couple of things that I think that are worth picking up on. One is, of course, that Justin Trudeau made these remarks after Donald Trump had gotten on the plane. He was on his way to Singapore by the time the press conference was taking place. And in, in, in a way, it's almost like a guest leaving your party and you decide you're going to, you know, talk about how uncouth they were at the dinner table kind of thing. Um, and then the second part though, that I don't understand, and this is where you can help me around the relationship with Kim, is it, if Donald Trump was so worried about looking weak in the eyes of Kim, what do you think Kim thinks when Donald Trump is so willing to throw allies aside like this? Does that reassure Kim that essentially he can do a deal like they appear to have done in Singapore and that it holds? Oh God, again, you know, reading uh, Donald Trump's difficult. Kim would be even more difficult. But yes, one would have to think that a rational, uh, reasonable analysis. So, like, you know, the, the, the old standard for a jury, twelve, you know, well over twelve average citizens think. You would think that twelve average world leaders uh, with minimal intelligence, um, meaning intel, um, on the issue would, would come to that conclusion. So that's you know. We can't know what uh, Kim is thinking, but logically you would think that that would be at the front of his mind. And they must be aware of that and factor that into their dealings, which makes you worried about the negotiations. With Trudeau, you know, the press conference was scheduled. Uh, The president left early. So, you know, the remarks would have come out uh, when they would have come out. And, um, you know, what he said, again, was not lighting the host or stabbing him in the back. It was boiler standard, boring, boilerplate language with a little added bit for the domestic audience. But again, it was nothing out of the ordinary and the mundane for this sort of trade dispute. So to you know, take something like this, it's sort of like saying, well, you know, you know the, the guest left early and um, you know, uh, uh, you know, didn't park the car correctly or, so, or something really minor. And then to have your neighbor come back and yell and scream that you stabbed them in the back and they're never going to speak to you again and they're going to sue you. So yeah, it, it's way out of proportion. Yeah. Canada has made it clear they're going to respond in certain cases. If Ottawa feels it's appropriate, they'll retaliate, but they're not going to be reactive. And I don't think we've seen any instant reactions from Canada. It's been very methodical. Is there a point of no return? Is there something Trump could do? Could he push it so far in his tactics where Canada decides, you know what, it's going to leave the negotiating table? You can always imagine. Yes, yes, you can imagine a scenario where the U.S. demands become so onerous or, 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 or so outside the pale um, that negotiations are simply um, fruitless. But that's a very high bar to meet. You know, you remain engaged. You continue to work with the Americans. And again, where the negotiators are left in the room by themselves, you do see progress. So we need to remember that uh, leaks or comments, uh, especially from the Mexican uh, team, have indicated that we are close to halfway through the negotiations. So I think over 10 chapters are concluded or are close to being concluded. So real progress has been made by, again, the technical team, the negotiators, the the line guys who are down um, doing the actual technical details of the negotiations. We have seen progress there. But of course, the big issues, uh, the sunset clause, supply management, 
government procurement intellectual property, those issues are going to be much tougher to resolve and are going to require political will. And therein lies the problem. Will you get the political will to cross the finish line? Well, the auto sector now seems to be the next uh, the next piece of this uh, because of the Canadian retaliatory measures uh, for the uh, the aluminum and steel uh, tariffs. Uh, is that viable, be given the supply chain, given that these parts and pieces move back and forth across the borders before they wind up in a car or a truck? No, but we really have no choice. If the Americans are going to impose uh, tariffs, we have to take the full measure. And that includes uh, aluminum and steel, but it also it includes the broader range of things we've targeted, uh, like pizza, bourbon, I, I forget what the entire list is. But <clears throat> we also need to remember that the last time a U.S. administration imposed tariffs on imported steel was, I think, 2002 when the Bush administration uh, did this. We've got a long blog post uh, on the Canada West side that folks want to get into the deep details. But in essence, this was an idea by Carl Rove. And you'll remember Carl Rove was the evil boy genius of the Bush administration, won the elections for him. His idea, against the advice of Bush's economic team, was to impose tariffs on imported steel right in advance of the midterm elections, trying to win Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia. It seemed like a good idea, except, of course, for Bush's economic team, who yelled and screamed, Carl Rove won the day, and what happened? 18 months later, the Americans withdrew the tariffs Eight, which was 18 months in advance of when they were scheduled to come in. So they didn't even let the terrorists run the full, full course. Why? Not because they lost at the WTO. They pulled the terrorists because it was such an economic and political disaster for the Bush administration. The hit to U.S. jobs, the hit to GDP growth, and the political fallout from all the companies that use steel. So they won some points with a few of the steel manufacturers, but then every other company, and you can see the chain leaving the steel mill to all the hundreds and thousands of companies, all those companies revolted uh, through the, the negative impacts or the harm caused by higher prices on steel. So the last time the U.S. tried this, it was such a disaster that the Bush administration had to withdraw it. And calling it a disaster is not something outside analysts did. It's something people in the Bush administration said at the time. And I just saw Carl Rove on TV uh, a few weeks ago, and he was you know, shaking his head at the administration imposing steel tariffs, saying, my God. You, do, you weren't paying attention at all. We made this mistake, and now you're making this mistake. So I think this is going to bite the Americans. If that does happen, then the pressure is on the Americans to um, rescind the tariffs. And in 2002, Canada and Mexico weren't part of the um, tariffs on imported steel. This time we are. So now you have the U.S.'s largest supply, two of the U.S.'s largest suppliers of steel also subject to tariffs. So the damage in 2002 should be larger and faster to impact the U.S. than it was back in 2002. So our adding to this will hasten the pace of the damage picking up in the U.S. and should theoretically hasten the Americans doing what the Bush administration did, uh, which was to change course. Yeah, but outside of maybe the Access Hollywood tape, I've never seen Donald Trump express anything akin to remorse or apology. 
Well, you could say the same thing for Karl Rove. Um, <laughs> and to, to see him actually admit he made a mistake is, is stunning. I don't know if we'll get the same thing out of uh, President Trump, but for Rove to admit he made the mistake, it would have to be a pretty big mistake and pretty obvious. Well, and it, the president has tied a lot of these tariffs to the renegotiation of NAFTA or to broader goals with other countries, too. So rescinding them early before any sort of conclusion doesn't seem to fit with his MO. He would lose that leverage that I think he's after. Yeah, it, it would. And the question here, again, is, as with 2002 and 1975, what will Congress do? Uh, and we talked about this uh, before, but trade is a congressional responsibility. The power that President Trump has to impose tariffs, uh, either to protect a surge, the U.S. from a surge of imports or for national security reasons, is power that is explicitly given to him by the Congress. And we've seen a move recently. Bob Corker, the senator from Tennessee, has a bipartisan measure to restrict the president's ability to impose tariffs for U.S. national security reasons. And that's starting to pick up support. Obviously, Trump enjoys a great deal of support or fear uh, from a wide swath of Congress. But it'll be interesting to see how far this goes. In 1975, Congress actually restricted the ability, I think it was a President Ford, um, to use uh, national security measures um, to impose tariffs. And Congress has come close a couple times to restricting other presidents. So if enough Congress people go back to their home ridings or districts and enough small businesses yell at them as people start to lose their jobs, it's going to be interesting to see if this is going to cause a repeat of 1975. Carlo, how much time is left, do you think, in the negotiations before they commingle too much with uh, elections in the other two countries? I think that's already happened, uh, but I think that will lead to hiatus. So we have the Mexican elections next month, uh, actually in a few weeks, and the new Congress comes in in September, the new president comes in end of December or January. Then you have uh, you know, the U.S. midterm elections occurring in November, new Congress coming in um, at the, uh, uh, after the Christmas break, and then you have our elections in 2019. So my guess is you know, the negotiations will continue quietly on some of the technical matters, and you won't be able to resolve the larger issues probably into 2020. Wow. Wow. That's quite a ways away. We're going to have to yeah. have you on many more times. Until and, and I'm going to, I'm prepared to be spectacularly wrong about that and take abuse on Twitter for it, but sure. I'll, I'll put it out there anyway. Fair enough. Well, Carlo, we appreciate you joining the show as always. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. That's Carlo Dade, Director of the Center for Trade and Investment Policy at the Canada West Foundation. Our tech, tech panel is going to be with us here right after the break uh, to take a look at the latest industry news. Stay with us. Amazon is in the news this week on two fronts. We're going to discuss that as well as have a look at Sesame Street's push to get kids coding as play. These are the topics for this week's tech panel. Joining us in studio is Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence at the University of British Columbia. Thanks for joining us again. 
Thanks for having me. And joining us for her first BIV Today tech panel is Linda Faucus, founder and CEO at Glue Technology Society, which is a nonprofit that provides tech education training to older adults. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the the more serious of the two Amazon news items. An investigation we know is now underway after an American watchdog group criticized Amazon for labor practices at one of their factories in China. The concerns were around underpaying workers, which of course would be illegal. Now, this isn't the first time Amazon has gotten into hot water. It's not the first time this particular contractor has had issues waged against them. Amiel, does this influence our consumer behavior at the end of the day? Well, sadly, I checked Amazon's stock price this morning when I was reading the story, and Amazon is up. So uh, it's certainly having no immediate bearing on the public markets, but I do think it should impact our choices as consumers. Amazon has a very checkered past uh, in terms of softening its ethical stance to reap greater profits. And, and you see that from the way it's it's been called out for treating its employees in first world countries all the way to the types of products it's willing to carry. And then, of course, now to how it ch- treats its offshore manufacturing and yeah, I think consumers should vote for their daughter for their dollars. Are we their dollars? Are we happier now that we maybe didn't come close to getting HQ two? I'll I'll jump in with that one. I don't know if we're happier about that. I think it's easy for us to look at Foxconn's reputation and isolate it to Amazon, but they're basically the OEM creating the mobile world, right? So we've got Apple and Amazon and every other major manufacturer developing there. So Amazon HQ2, I think, would have been amazing for Vancouver. It would have? I think it would have been incredible here. And 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 I think that Amazon needs to step up its game, certainly, but they've only been at it since 1994. And if we're looking at their major competitor, really, in this Whole Foods retail space, as well being Walmart, then that's not a great reputation either. So I think it's important we look at all the companies we're dealing with and not just isolate it to what Foxconn's doing with Amazon. And they're going back and forth, it seems, in Seattle about whether there is going to be kind of an employer's tax locally uh, in order to do this. But but as companies like Amazon just metastasize, they, 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 and, when, and where they go, they they put a big foot down and and hold a city. Is that now, do you think, part of the New Deal that, that uh, so, and this Foxconn investigation almost appears to be a, an element of it, which is that where, wherever a big company goes and drops, drops anchor, um, it's going to have to have, I mean, some kind of other corporate re- social responsibility that will be commensurate? Oh, absolutely. I think that should be the expectation of all companies and the larger they get that, uh, expectation should only increase. So yes, I do believe that Amazon should have a plan to support its workers, should give back to the cities and the communities that it does business with. They are hugely profitable and uh, can absolutely afford it. And I think we often look to these tech companies as innovators, as they are in many respects. But when it comes to ethical standards, sustainability measures, Linda, sometimes they're, they're they fall short. They're old, they're old school. school. They're, they're old school. Yeah, they are. And that, you know, that's Uber, it's Tesla, it's Apple, it's Amazon. You know, I, it seems like we have something to reconcile there. Linda, are, is there any major tech company, that's a multinational company that's really walking the walk, so to speak? 
Well, my personal operating system is Apple, so I'm going to just advocate for them for a second. I think they're doing an incredible job on sustainability. Um, there are many other tech companies doing it. If you look at the, is it the Ethosphere uh, uh, ethical uh, list they came out with, mm -hmm. with LinkedIn, Microsoft, and Dell at the top of the list. Amazon and Apple didn't make that list, but Apple now saying they're 100% renewable energy is an interesting goal they met, and I'm excited about that. Their investment in robotic technology, the DAISY and uh, technology that's allowing them to dismantle, what is it, 200 iPhones an hour or something to get all their reusable parts out and, and reuse those parts into new technologies. I think Apple's doing an impressive job. They've got a long way to go, don't get me wrong, but I think it's incredibly impressive how they're leading the pack in their sector. Fair enough. Back to Amazon, the lighter news concerning them. About half of Amazon's whole food locations in the States will now roll out prime membership discounts of around 10% off on-sale grocery items. Not yet in Canada, so members here are going to have to wait for that. Do you think this is going to pull more people into prime memberships, Amiel? I think so. Um, it looks like Amazon is uh, emulating the iTunes and Apple model where yeah. they have this massive subscriber base and all of a sudden they can take over, you know, in Apple's case, took over the entire music industry. And, you know, Amazon, it's almost everything else from groceries to books to clothes. And, you know, we'll probably see guest delivery and pharmaceuticals down the line as well. Um they have 100 million subscribers. Uh, I read somewhere that, you know, with this increase in price, it's going to add another $18 billion in value. Wow. Yeah. yeah, we do the math, right? It's uh, American membership, I think, is what, 119 now? 119 or 129? 119. 119. Mm -hmm. 119. So 119, uh, you know, that means that if you spend 1100 or $1,200 a year on groceries, you're actually ahead by having a Prime membership, which also gets you all of these other things. I mean, I'm not trying to be a commercial for these guys, but they seem to have found a way through a membership to lock people in and to really create almost their own, well, they're almost their own ecosystem in the economy. Absolutely. And, you know, Whole Paycheck yeah. or Whole Foods is, it's a wonderful place to shop for many reasons, but um, it is not cheap. And a lot of people would love to have improved savings there. I'm waiting for Amazon Realty Company in the city. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> started not very far away. <laughs> well, to your point about whole paycheck, I think sort of the other shoe to drop has been whether we're going to see a slashing of quality at Whole Foods. Do you think that's coming if Amazon's trying to cut costs? I think when we do the math on whether Amazon online shopping, if Amazon's in the business of shipping food in boxes, and we compare it again to Walmart, their pricing's comparable to Walmart. So I walk into a Whole Foods and I have other opportunities in my life to shop at Thrifties and Safeways and whatever. And it's amazing how while there are some outlier pricing, they're all pretty standardized. So I'm not sure it's quite whole paycheck anymore. But I think this move towards the prime membership and all the extra benefits it gets us really makes it almost impossible for people to look elsewhere like Walmart. Well, that's... and. With a lot of uh, precedents in this area, particularly the telecom space, um, at one point, the regulators start to say, okay, too much here. You have too much of a stranglehold on something. Does Amazon face that at all, Emil, in the time to come? Or are they going to be permitted to just grow and grow and grow? 
with the current White House administration and their relationship <laughs> with uh, Donald Trump, I I believe that is absolutely possible. I mean, Amazon has just enjoyed an impressive amount of growth and has diversified across so many sectors. It, it never seems like they have a single stronghold on one industry. Um, but I, you know, it, anything is possible, and uh, I, I I don't see why not. Uh, they'd get some pressure from from government, but right now they're just totally diversified, so they can keep growing. What do you think, Linda? I think that they will be able to keep growing. I don't see them as a – they're not a monopoly in any speci- any one sector yet, so how do you stop them? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Fair enough. Our last story, I think one of the most surprising elements about this is that Sesame Street has a venture fund, and they're using it in this case to invest in a startup called Cano, which puts together coding kits for kids, but also adults as well. And the latest funding is going to go toward blockchain kits. Uh, Linda, you're sort of in the space of helping older adults get technology training. What do you think about sort of introducing coding skills sort of almost innately to kids when they're really young? I think it's a brilliant idea. I've got a son in sciences at UBC, and he uh, never had the opportunity to do coding in high school and elementary school. And anything we can do to get this into the kids' lives early is critically important today. So I'm really, really excited. What are the concepts that would would be taught at that early age? Because you're not really going to be talking about, say, CSS for a four-year-old. Um, but not, when, not yet. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> but, but where where does it start? I mean, Alan and Linda, talk talk through what you think the sense of play is that reaches the point where you can then begin to do something in an elementary stage of coding. Programming is a language, so it's the same fundamentals of learning to speak English or learning to speak French. And you, you know, you raise the notion of play, and you're already seeing that make its way into all kinds of really interesting toys for young children. Whether they can program a robot through, you know, simple buttons, and then it 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 creates the robot to do certain accents actions. So you are seeing those types of things take over. And Linda? I think the sense of play is important. When we look at kids as early as preschool now, trying to figure out how to write, starting to read, certainly in kindergarten, um, we do that in really fun ways. Um, and anything we can do to bring this technology into the play creative side of the world for with these kids as young as possible is important. We want them to have a sense of technology as a creative expression of who they are and what value they can add to the world. And we don't do that first with coding. We do that with understanding what the technology is and how is it exciting and how can they put their personal stamp on it. So earlier the better. Now, once you're an adult, do you get the sense of play too or is there the sense of fear? <laughs> With our glue population, those are people born roughly before 1960, it's a lot of fear. And and they tend to stick to technology in a very administrative way. They look at emails, Google search, um, and maybe do some calendar events. So we're pushing them into a sense of play with technology because this stuff is amazing, as we all know. It's amazing and fun, and it connects us to our interests and hobbies. And and we need to, at Glue, we do whatever we can to get that fear aside, give them the skills and confidence to dive into the fun. But children have no such apprehension. They're just, they're like... <laughs> they're, they're all about they're the playing. fun. They're, they're, they're playing. It's all yeah, okay absolutely. for them. They're learning through play, which is... Great. Yes. Well, one question about 
when kids start to get older, they go into elementary school. Amel, you mentioned sort of the how this is a language. It is parents who decide to enroll their kids into French immersion. How are we going to educate parents per se about, you know what, you're not going to do French, you're going to do coding, or you're going to do coding and French and sort of keeping that educational piece alive. Or Mandarin in this Or city. Mandarin, yeah. 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 I think it is an awareness piece that parents do need to understand. I was at a conference last week, Creative Destruction Labs, and uh, Vinod Kosla, was big Silicon Valley VC, he was making these amazing predictions. And one of the things he said, because of the you know increasing application of technology in our lives, is that doctors won't go to med school, they'll go to math school. Mm. Right. So everything is changing and it's going to have a huge impact on education and how we think we prepare our children for the future. And I think we need to give parents, because you're right, it's parents making the decisions for the kids in elementary school, certainly, but to open up our school system to allow kids and parents to insert that coding piece where the language uh, requirement is now, I would be a huge proponent of. My son spent so many hours of his high school and elementary school years trying to figure out French, a language he had to take, didn't necessarily enjoy. And and I wonder how much farther ahead he'd be if we could have dedicated a great portion of those hours to coding. Yeah. What I wonder about, Linda, and, and I, it's not a disparagement of uh, the teaching profession, but you're really talking about such uh, mass enrollment and mass education in a skill set that I think requires a great deal of expertise. Uh, what do we have to do about the teaching profession in order to make sure that it can keep some kind of pace? Because here you are, you know, you've, you've got a specialization, you've got a, a smaller um, cohort, but we're really talking about hundreds of thousands of millions of, of Canadians alone. Yeah, it's a, we're talking about a huge uh, undertaking. And we can see, though, there are guiding lights in the United States, the Chicago school district, saying every kid's going to graduate with some sort of level of coding. We have to start somewhere. How do we get our teachers up to speed is a great question. But we're not talking about popping kids out of high school necessarily ready to start their own startups and code their own uh, big software applications. But we need to start with the creative and these smaller bits like Cano, for instance, like just even pro D days for uh, teachers to explore with their kids, perhaps in the beginning and, and integrating higher levels of coding into the system, our public school system, some schools do that really well here. But it's um, in elementary school, it's early days, and we need to start with the creative play side. And I think again, Products like Cano and the Sesame Street Ventures um, opportunities are showing us ways to bring these technologies in in playful, easy ways that don't require an expert standing in the front of the classroom. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see how the blockchain ones take shape. Well, That's then there's that. Yeah. 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 Linda. Yeah, we're not not going to teach the kids about cryptocurrency, are we? <laughs> we are. <Yeah. laughs> okay. We are. Yeah. Linda Amiel, thank you all so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. That's Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO at Glue Technology Society, and Amiel Lake, entrepreneur in residence at UBC. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. Subscribe to us and find past episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, and of course at BIV.com. We'll be back tomorrow. 